I'm delighted to welcome Christopher Morgan, a member of the Athenaeum. He holds an MS in Computer Science from Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute and a BS in Electronics Engineering from Manhattan College. But his career took a turn in the late 1970s when he received a surprise offer to be editor uh, of Byte Magazine. He, um, his books include Wizards and Their Wonders, Portraits and Computing. Not only is he an author and computer scientist, but also puzzle designer, magician, and collector of Lewis Carroll's works. Of course, the Athenaeum is also a collector of Lewis Carroll's works, and if you are interested in those, uh, behind you in the bow room, you'll notice the various editions of Alice are displayed on the new bookstands. Um, Chris's various interests have um, come together today wonderfully for the, uh, top, the topic of the day, which is featured in the book he edited for the Lewis Carroll Society, um, Games, Puzzles, and Related Pieces. It is volume five in their series, Pamphlets of Lewis Carroll. Please join me in welcoming Chris Morgan. Thank you so much. And uh, it is really a, a, a great pleasure to be here as a member. And uh, it's one of my favorite places. And I'm probably one of the few presenters who comes here who can walk here. <laughs> and uh, it's, uh, it's 34 minutes from my house to here. Uh, so today I'm going to talk about the interesting and sometimes surprising connections between the two famous Alice in Wonderland books and Lewis Carroll's lifelong interest in games, puzzles, gadgets, magic, origami, you name it. Uh, it was something that he, uh, it, it almost formed the core of his life. When he began uh, writing the book, it was about 152 years ago, but this year is the 150th anniversary of the actual publication of Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, which is the, the actual title that everybody says Alice in Wonderland. Uh, and, uh, and there have been all kinds of exhibits and presentations and speeches that have been going on all year long throughout the world. And if you want to find out more about them, there's still quite a lot going on. There's a great one at the New York Public Library. And there's one just finishing up at the Grolier Club in New York. And just go to uh, alice150.com, and there are events going on in probably 40 countries all the way through next year. And in fact, I'll be talking at the Rosenbach Library in January uh, about Alice, uh, Alice and the, the games and puzzles down there because uh, they have an exhibit that runs through May. So if you get down to Philadelphia, they have a terrific exhibit. Uh, I just finished writing this book, and it's the fifth volume in uh, an ongoing six-volume series where we tried to print all of Lewis Carroll's uh, pamphlets. He was an enthusiastic pamphleteer. Throughout his life, he wrote over 200 pamphlets on just about every possible subject, mathematics, architecture, tennis, how to how to uh, fairly uh, how to fairly uh, run a tennis match, uh, all kinds of other sports, and of course games and puzzles. And among his many pamphlets are this one, which we'll be talking about a little later on. This is called Doublets. So I'll pass this around. This is from my collection, just to let you folks take a look at a typical Carol pamphlet. In this case, it's like a miniature book. A lot of them were just one-off sheets that he'd go down and have printed maybe 10 copies of something because he got interested in it. 
And because of that, some of them are quite collectible and quite rare. So I'll just ask you to just pass this around. And I'll give you an idea of what the pamphlets look like. Over about 20, uh, he wrote over about 20 pamphlets on games and puzzles, and that's what we'll be talking about today. But let me begin with something that Lewis Carroll liked to do whenever he met people or gave a talk. And that was to bring a gadget out of his pocket, which he always carried around with him. He had all kinds of things. And this one is called the, uh, the CLD nose trick. I will demonstrate the nose trick to you now. It's rather painful to do this trick. Oh, man, that hurts. The, uh, because it goes through your nose like that. And, uh, uh, don't try this at home. The, well, spoiler alert, it's actually not going through my nose. So you may have thought so. But amazingly enough, it goes down through the V and up through the other end. So it's, uh, the, it's a good, better look at it. Uh, and his family called it the CLD nose trick, which is short for Charles Litwich Dodgson, his, his real name. And of course, his famous pen name was Lewis Carroll. A name that he never very seldom acknowledged in public. In fact, a lot of times people would come up and say, aren't you Lewis Carroll? And he'd say, no. And he was very, didn't like to be recognized. That's what the original looked like. There aren't any more of those around, so I had a good friend of mine make one who's a woodworker. And, uh, and he sells these, so if anyone wants one, if, you, if you're on the tee at rush hour and you want a seat by yourself, <laughs> you'll thank me later. This is what Carol looked like around about the time when he was just about to write the first of the Alice books. He was a polymath. He was a generalist. Besides being one of the greatest writers in the world, he was also an expert photographer. And in fact, if he had never written any of his books, he would still be well known today as one of the best of the Victorian photographers because he had the knack for revealing people's personalities even though you had to sit still for 30 seconds. And that's not easy to do. And he did it so well that his photographs are extremely expensive now. Everybody wants them because he was so good at what he did. He knew and photographed a lot of famous people in the 19th century. Tennyson, Ellen Terry, uh, Dante, Gabriel Rossetti, many, many other famous people. There's a, a persistent myth that Carroll was a recluse. In fact, he was quite the opposite. He was very social. He spent a lot of time at the theater, masterminded the production of an Alice uh, stage play, and knew lots of famous people. So it's, uh, it's interesting to see that he's really not like, um, not like his popular image. Now, here's a mouse in Alice's Adventures in Wonderland near the beginning. Now, Carol loved magic, and this was the trick he would do for just about anybody he was meeting for the first time. Now, I have a handkerchief mouse here, and I will show you what that looks like close up. These are easy to make. Uh, if you go on the web and you just Google on handkerchief mouse, you will see videos that tell you how to make these. It's just a white handkerchief, and you, you tie it and make a tail and two ears. Now, there are no strings attached. Would, would, sir, would you just take a look? And see, there's nothing funny about the mouse. Don't look too careful. You know, the, so all you do is you, you pet it, and it, uh, and it, it, starts, it starts moving on you. And, that, and Carol would do this, and it would, sorry, the, it, it would just 
And the, the funny thing, oh sorry, and the funny thing is that there's nothing attached to it at all, but it just doesn't stop moving. So, so that's the handkerchief mouse, and if you want to try that, uh, there's a little bit in the book about uh, how it's done. So I will reveal that. Uh, in fact, there's a magic trick in the Alice books. There's a magic trick in Through the Looking Glass, but it's pretty obscure. And I'll show you because unless someone happens to know, it might be difficult for you to know that it's called Balancing an Egg. There's a chapter in Through the Looking Glass called Wool in Water, where Alice is rowing a boat with an old sheep. And they go into her shop, and the sheep has uh, some eggs in a basket in the middle there. And during the course of their conversation, she picks up one of the eggs and puts it on the shelf behind her, and it balances on end. And uh, Carol just throws that in and makes no further remarks. But that was a popular 19th century trick. And there are two ways you can do it. You can actually bang the egg against the table to flatten it a little bit, and then it'll stand up. Or you can put a pinch of salt on the table, cover it with a cloth, and then nestle the egg in it, and it will will stay standing up. Uh, Or you can cut the top off and put a a BB in (laughs) like 20 or 30 BBs, and then glue it back together. I don't recommend doing that. You could do that. Uh, so there, there's a little piece of trivia. So what did Carol do as, uh, way, uh, in, in the way of pamphlets about games and puzzles? Well, he, he wrote a card game called Castle Croquet that's somewhat related to croquet. Then he wrote doublets, which we'll talk about in a little bit. He also wrote something called Puzzles from Wonderland, very easy word puzzles, a more difficult word game called Syzygies. Then he wrote an anagrammatic sonnet. That's, uh, these are all in the book. That one's tricky. Memoria Technico is a way to remember dates, and it's actually very clever. Landrick was his game that you used a chess set to play, but it was completely different. Mishmash was a word game. Circular Billiards was a circular billiard table uh, that he had built and uh, sent one to his nieces, and they didn't care for it. <laughs> they wrote in a letter, not to him, but to someone else. Uh, number guessing puzzle, lots of other things. Now, here's a short list of just a few of Carol's gadgets that were in his apartment at the time of his death. Uh, a paper pistol that exploded, a machine for turning music over, artist models of a hand, a foot, and a human skull, the skeleton of a hand and foot, boxes of mathematical instruments and geometric solids, a printing press, and something called Bob the Bat, which was a mechanical toy that flew, powered by elastic bands. Ah, he had a mechanical walking furry black bear and all kinds of other gadgets. So he was a gadget freak. When he heard about something called Thomas Edison's electric pen, this is the late 1870s, he rushed out and bought one. Believe it or not, it was a stylus that had a solenoid in it in a huge battery. It was a wet plate battery. And you'd turn this thing on, and, and it would move like that. It had a sharp point, and you'd just write on the paper, and it would perforate the paper. And then you'd take some ink and a roller, and you'd make copies of it. Uh, a, a year later, the mimeograph was invented, so that was kind of the end of the electric pen. But Carol used it for one of his pamphlets. 
And it's very interesting. I, I looked at a, a picture of one of them, and it has tiny dots all over the place, and you have to write very slowly. But he couldn't help himself. He just had to buy the latest and greatest. So I'm sure he would have a smartphone. He would have, uh, he'd have a watch. I, I, I'd be surprised if he didn't. These are some of the typical puzzles from his time uh, that, uh, that he would go into London and buy. There was a particular shop that he loved to go to, and it had puzzles, games, magic. And uh, it's typical, typical of the late, mid to late 19th century. Those are, that's a tricky little puzzle right there. You have to get the four, five balls in the five spots. Not so easy. Uh, the, the 15, 16 puzzle, that's a very famous puzzle that some of you may know from your childhood where you have to slide all the slide, sliders around to get the numbers in order. And uh, in his diary, he, he wrote, uh, someone gave me a puzzle from America. I was up till three in the morning trying to solve it, and I don't think he, don't think he solved it. Very tricky puzzle. Uh, croquet. Now, croquet is in Alice's Adventures in Wonderland, of course. And, uh, but at the time Carol wrote the book, croquet was brand new. It was a craze in the 1860s. It had just started. Uh, and, of course, the Red Queen insists on the croquet game in the book. Uh, Carol often played croquet with Alice Little and her two sisters. And, and in fact, uh, there are veiled references to the names of the sisters in the Alice books, where you'll see the names of her sisters in her kind of uh, disguise. But the girls got the clue. They got the, uh, the idea. So it was new. It was uh, everybody was playing it. And there is Alice playing with a flamingo. Now, um, Carol also wrote a pamphlet called Castle Croquet, and he said, uh, let's take two sets of croquet equipment and come up with this variant. And it's a sort of a military game where you have gates and doors and prisoners, flags. And uh, today it's regarded by croquet experts as probably the best version of croquet. So uh, you can see it online or look in my book and uh, get the rules. And it's, uh, I have not tried it, but I've played regular croquet, and this is supposed to be very, very good. Uh, Bruce Whitehall, uh, who's a games expert, he said it's the very best version of croquet you can play on your lawn. Now, interesting, when Carol wrote the handwritten, one-of-a-kind manuscript that he handed to Alice as a gift, it was called Alice's Adventures Underground. And she was playing not with a flamingo, but with an ostrich. So for some reason, he and the illustrator, John Tenniel, decided to change it to a flamingo, perhaps because a flamingo is a little more easier to draw. Uh, that manuscript, Alice's Adventures in uh, uh, Underground, was at the, Grolier, excuse me, at, the, uh, at the Morgan Library this fall. On, uh, on loan from the British Library. And it's only been out of Britain twice. And I happened to see it 30 years ago when the first time that it was loaned to the Morgan Library. Uh, and it's really a thrill to see. It may be the most precious uh, of one-of-a-kind manuscripts from the modern era. Uh, it's, it was really a thrill to see. And, uh, and then... For one week, they loaned it to the Rosenbach Library in Philadelphia because that's where Alice came in 1931 to sign a limited edition of Alice in Wonderland in her late 70s. She 
across the Atlantic. She frankly needed the money, and they paid her very well, and she spent the whole day signing the 1,000 copies. Came back home, and, and I think she died a year or two later. So we're very lucky to have that. And I brought along, I, I happen to have one in my collection, so I brought along, and afterwards in back, uh, if anybody would like to see it, uh, it's, uh, it's probably my most treasured book, because there, there is her signature. And, uh, of course, her name had changed to Alice Hargreaves. She had married a Mr. Hargreaves. Her maiden name was Little. Uh, but uh, it's, it's in really great shape, so I'd be more than happy to let you take a look at that. Here's a close-up of the ostrich. Uh, so games for Carol were serious business, ironically. They, they weren't fun and games. They were, he took games very, very seriously, and he said in his game column in Vanity Fair that puzzles offer a bribe to the human intellect to exert itself on however trivial a matter, so as not to spend all of its waking hours in simple stagnation. All healthy mental games have the same merit. So he was pretty serious about games, and he spent a lot of time playing games. He absolutely loved playing by the rules, playing according to Hoyle, as we would call it. He always took a portable chess set or backgammon set with him when he went on the train. And one scholar, Catherine Blake, says that Carroll lived his life, so to speak, according to Hoyle. She said, what is important that Carroll's art expresses a kind of game player's mentality. Hoyle was the preeminent authority on the rules of games in the 19th century, and we still say today, to play by Hoyle, uh, is to play fairly. Uh, and she said, Games and puzzles underlie virtually everything Carroll did, from his elaborate system for filing letters to the many puzzles he designed to help him get through troubled sleepless nights, he was an insomniac, to his precise rules for determining which of his child friends were kissable and which were not, and, and so on. Speaking of writing letters, he wrote about 100,000 letters in his lifetime. Not only did he write them, he kept a meticulous ledger of every letter with a summary of the letter, a summary of his reply, sometimes carbon copies, and uh, unfortunately the ledger has been lost. But there are lots of clues, including from Carroll himself. He wrote in a pamphlet about how he kept his ledger, which is in my book, and it's, it's on letter writing, and he tells you exactly how to do it. So if you just want to devote your entire life to writing letters, and uh, it's, it was very time-consuming. He says, sometimes I think I spend half of my waking hours uh, writing letters and the other half reading them. And he would get up at 5 in the morning and uh, stand at a standing desk. He had a standing desk, and he'd write for hours, hours and hours and hours just to get caught up. He is not the all-time winner, though, in the, uh, the letter-writing pantheon. Uh, one of our U.S. presidents wrote 130,000 letters. Does anyone know which president it was? Uh, it wasn't Wilson, but you're in the right time period. Yes, Teddy Roosevelt. And the only reason I know that was because I watched the Roosevelt's PBS uh, documentary, and they happened to mention that, and I thought, that's a lot of letters. If you just do your math, you could see that he, he just was going nonstop. So uh, I don't know who else has broken the 100,000 
letter marked. It would be interesting to see who else did. Uh, so Carol uh, wrote a card game called Court Circular, and that's in the book. It's, uh, uh, it's a, bit, a little bit like croquet, um, sort of a militaristic uh, game. But what's interesting in it is that he, in the rules, you are forbidden from resigning after a certain point, which seems a little odd. Um, you'd think that, you know, why wouldn't you be allowed to resign? Uh, but, but in fact, that was written right around the time when he was writing Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. And at the end of Wonderland, Alice suddenly decides to resign the bizarre game she's been playing. And she, she wakes up shortly after this. And she says, hold your tongue. Oh, she says, um, hold your tongue, said the queen, turning purple. I won't, said Alice. Off with her head, the queen shouted at the top of her voice. Nobody moved. Who cares for you, said Alice. You're nothing but a pack of cards. And at this point, Alice woke up and the story was over. Uh, so resigning is something that, that Carol would probably never do himself. I, I, I should say that Dodgson would never do it, but Carol, his alter eagle, uh, ego, just might. He loved obeying the rules. He also enjoyed breaking them. And here you see the cards theme that goes all through Alice in Wonderland. Uh, so, so Alice in Wonderland is based on a deck of cards. Through the Looking Glass is based on chess, heavily based on chess. In fact, the entire story is a chess game, and Carol says that up front in the book. And all the characters are literally chess pieces, uh, with, with many exceptions. Uh, but when you think of the main characters, like the White Knight is a chess piece. And uh, Tweedledum and Tweedledee are not, but... Uh, there, there is this underlying, literally a grid, that, that defines how the story moves forward. So Carol had, uh, at that time, become very interested in mirror illusions. And of course, the uh, first thing that happens in Through the Looking Glass is that Alice goes through the looking glass and she becomes reversed. Uh, and that's probably the most famous mirror illusion in the books. But there are other mirror illusions in there. And here you see how the clock changes its face when she gets to the other side. It has a little smiling face on the other side of the, uh, uh, of the mirror, which not everybody notices. Now, speaking of reversals, the Jabberwock is here in this illustration. And the poem, Jabberwocky, appears in Through the Looking Glass reversed. Here's one of the other illustrations. And these are the various animals. Twas brillig in the slithy tove, did gyre and gimble in the wave. All mimsy were the groves, and the momraths outgrave. And that's all of them in that illustration. But when you pick up the book, it's backwards. And I think the publishers had a bit of a problem trying to create reverse type to do this. I think this must have been a custom job for them. So in the book, uh, it says, uh, Alice puzzled over this for some time, and at last a bright thought struck her. What? It's a looking glass book, of course. And if I hold it up to a glass, the words will all go the right way again. And indeed they do. And so that's, that's in the book. Uh, so Carol was so fond of mirror writing that he would often write letters to his friends. And here's a letter from 1883, entirely backwards. The only way you can read it is to hold it up to uh, a mirror. That was to a child friend in 1883, and he's talking about doublets, the game we're going to play in just a few minutes. So I'll show you what this looks like going the right way. Uh, 
And let's zoom in for a close-up, and we can see a little better what he's saying here. Oh, sorry, it's backwards. Guess we can't read it. Well, I'll have to go frontwards and see if we can get it to right. There we go. He says, my dear Daisy, I enclose you the rules for that game I taught you, also the puzzle of doublets for your sister. Now, here's an example of words that you could sit on top of a mirror. The left-hand set of words, let's assume that the mirror is on the table on the lower half there. If you put the card on top of it, you'll notice that the words on the left can be flipped, and they will read the same way. Cookbook has, has symmetry. The words on the right, on the other hand, and don't. And it's kind of fun to make up one of these cards and hold it up to a mirror. It looks really strange uh, to, uh, to see the... Uh, see, it, it almost looks bizarre. It looks like you're doing something to violate the laws of physics. Now, there is an interesting hidden message here related to cigarettes that some of you may, may catch. Uh, and uh, choice quality. Choice quality is written on the side of, of camel cigarettes. And people used to take the pack of cigarettes and put it on a mirror, and you could read it upside down. Not, not very politically correct to do these days, but... Uh, uh, so let's, let's talk a little bit about Carol's word games. Uh, there was a small, there was a small uh, magazine called Aunt Judy's Magazine, and Carol used to send in word games that were puns for children. Now here is a typical example, and it says, dreaming of apples on a wall, and dreaming often, dear, I dreamed that if I counted all, how many would appear. Now there's a very, very bad pun in this, and if you happen to catch it, you'll know what the answer is. Uh, I hint it's in the second line. In dreaming of ten, dear. Dreaming of ten, dear. So the answer is ten apples. Uh, they're all of this similar high quality. <laughs> but uh, but the, the other ones that are, that are in the book are a little more challenging. They're kind of fun. Uh, so, and Carol also would hide messages in his books. The very last page of Through the Looking Glass has this poem. It's one of Carol's best. I'll just read you a little bit of it. A boat beneath a sunny sky, lingering onward dreamily in an evening of July. Children three that nestle near, eager eye and willing ear, pleased a simple tale to hear. And of course, this is, this is uh, the, the famous trip up the river where Carol started telling the stories. And at the end, uh, in a wonderland they lie, dreaming as the days go by, dreaming as the summers die, ever drifting down the stream, lingering in a golden gleam. Life, what is it but a dream? But this is more than just a poem. I didn't know if you'd see anything of interest in it. It's a little hard to see because it's small type, but I'll put some boldface in there so that you can maybe see that the first letters are an acrostic that say Alice Pleasance Little. So he managed to get her full name in there and yet make the poem very readable. It was like a private joke between him and Alice and her sisters. So that's the, there's a lot of that in the books. Um, if you're interested in a lot of this, I recommend the annotated Alice by Martin Gardner. And there's a new edition just out this month. It's wonderful. And uh, Martin, right up to the end of his life, was 
adding more and more information to it. So this is the final definitive version. Annotated Alice is a terrific book if, if you're at all interested. So let's do some doublets here. If, if you have a pen or pencil, uh, you can play along. Now, doublets are not something you wear. That would be a doublet. Uh, but they were a game that Carroll invented in 1879. Actually, he invented it a little before then. Uh, and went to Vanity Fair magazine and said, I'd like to run a weekly games column and try doublets out. And they said, great. He knew the publisher, and, and it became a huge hit, and it ran for over a year. And he, he judged all the, the, the uh, entries himself, or he had, had some people help him. Uh, but he was the puzzle master. So let's try one. Here's, uh, here's one. It's, let's go from word to game. The game's very easy. It's a word ladder, if you're familiar with word ladders. You have to find a word that is different by one letter, word, ward. And again, change one more letter. Let's go to where, dare, dame, game. So now we've gone one, two, three, four, five steps to get from word to game. Now, could you do it in four steps? Much harder. I'll leave that to you as a challenge. But, but um, now what I'm going to have you, well, first of all, this is how they looked in the magazine when they were printed. These were the best entries. These are the award-winning entries for these three challenges, which said to change oat into rye, get wood from tree, and prove grass to be green. Carol liked to pose them as a sentence so that there was some kind of pattern to the words. Uh, as you can see, these are pretty tricky. Getting from grass to green takes one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight steps. Now, you might be able to do better. So uh, if you do get the book uh, and you want to try yourself, th these are not at all necessarily the best answers. But these just happen to be the best ones that came in to the magazine. And of course, Carol had such a great sense of humor. He was a little bit not sure about uh, evolution, so, so one of his challenges was evolve man from ape. And uh, uh, he kind of uh, liked Darwin, but wasn't quite sure. So here's how you get from ape to man. It's very, I think it's really challenging. R, er, er, ear, mar, man. That's a, that's a real tricky one. So now I'm going to have you folks try it with go from dog to cat. And the little hint is that you can do it in two steps. So I'll let you try that for a minute or two. And, uh, and if anyone gets it, you can hold your hand up. And uh, Oh, we've got several people that have got it. Okay, a few more. Okay, uh, there's more than one answer. Here's one, cog, cot, cat. You can also do uh, dot and caught cat, and there may be even others. Uh, but that's as good as you can do, because it's three steps and three letter changes, so you'd get a perfect score. So your score is the sum of the letters in the first word and the last word. So that's three letters plus three letters is six. And you get de one deduction for each extra step you take. So this would be, this would be six. If you needed an extra step in the middle, you'd get five. So that'd be your score, and that's how you score it, very easy. Uh, so let's try the second one on your page to go from I to lid. And that, again, can be done in two steps. So I'll let you think about that for a minute. Is 
And again, there's, I think there's more than one possible answer to this. Has anybody gotten it yet? I would, uh, if I were telling no lie, I would give you a hint. But, uh... <laughs> so one way is to go with the lie, L-Y-E. And uh, so there, there's one answer. But I think you can also go I die, D-Y-E, and then D-I-E. No, that doesn't work, does it? Uh, D-I-D and, and did and lid. So that'd be another answer. Uh, so as you can see, they, they, as you go along, they become harder. And uh, T hot is, uh, that's a tricky one too, because there aren't too many next steps from T. Uh, T, E, T. Well, probably Carol would have said, no, it's a proper name. Um, that gets into a whole discussion of Carol's uh, definition of ordinary words. He got himself into hot water in the columns by saying, well, no, you, that's not an ordinary word, in quotes. And, and of course, the contestant said, well, what, what is an ordinary word? And then he was kind of stuck. He said, well, it's whatever I say is an ordinary word. And uh, so it got so bad that he had to create a glossary. And if you've been looking at the glossary, the, at the back of the doublets, uh, pamphlet is a glossary, and it's like a Scrabble dictionary. The word has to be in there or you can't use it. And uh, so that was his way of getting out, out of it. Uh, so here's one answer. See, set, sought, hot. And we'll give you one more here. Uh, pig to sty. I, I know of a couple of ways to do this in about four steps, but uh, again, th these are tricky because of that Y at the end. That, that limits you what you can do. Sometimes it's better to go from bottom to top. But uh, the game is actually very addictive because you can pick your own, you can pick any two words that are the same length and just play with them. Uh, and, uh, and just see how you do. That's what the, I do every now and then. I'll just say, oh, can you get from this word to that word? So here are two answers to this. Uh, pit, sit, sat, say, or big bag, bay, say. Now, it's really hard to uh, create a doublet that is actually a sentence, but there are a couple in, uh, the, in the challenges that actually are sentences, and I can talk about that in the book. So at the bottom of the page, you can take, take this home with you and try these. These are uh, from the challenges in Vanity Fair, and um, if you email me, I'll send you the solution if you want to see, or let me know how you do, see if you do better. Uh, now, during the game, everybody had pen names, and I love the pen names. The, uh, the, so, some of them are named after, not so much in this game, but later on, people would actually take the names of characters from the Alice books. But I like Rampant Virtue, and, uh, and Le Dernier des Mohicans. <laughs> and uh, you, could, it, you could tell that this was a, a literate group, just having a lot of fun. And... Uh, Missing Link is another one. And, oh, it's Two Snarks. Of course, that's, uh, that's a direct reference to uh, Carol's poem, The Hunting of the Snark. Uh, and he, he loved being the puzzle master. He loved telling people, you know, 
what's good. And as I was saying earlier, he said, no word is admissible as a link unless it is to be found in some known dictionary and is also a word which might be used and would be universally understood in good society. So good, good luck with that. Uh, so doublets actually appear kind of in disguise and through the looking glass. Uh, Alice is a pawn, literally, in the game, in the book, and she encounters a fawn. And you'll notice that pawn and fawn are one letter apart. Now, Carol used that in a doublet challenge in one of the columns. So it's clear that his mind was thinking along these terms. And there are a lot of names in the books that are almost like doublets, like Tweedledum, Tweedledee. They're only two letters apart. Uh, and you can see patterns. And also, a lot of the words that were in the challenges were words like chess and Alice and other uh, raven. They're in there. So it's clear that his mind was kind of operating in that universe. Uh, and here, in Through the Looking Glass, Alice is in a uh, train car. And interestingly, there's a man wearing a paper hat. Now, it's, it's no... It's, uh, not a coincidence that he has a paper hat because in the walrus and the carpenter, the carpenter is wearing a paper hat like this. And, uh, and these were worn by printers and other uh, hourly workers and so on who uh, um, had to keep their hair from getting into whatever they were doing. So uh, Carol used to perform origami all the time and he was very good at it. So this is one that he did. So they, they do find their way into the books. Now, in this chapter, there's a goat over on the left sleeping. In the chapter, after Alice gets off the train, she meets a, a gnat, G-N-A-T, which is not pictured because the gnat would be too tiny. But it goes on. It's a three-page uh, conversation. It's one of the more substantial conversations in the book. But goat and gnat are just one letter apart. And again, I think it, it's not coincidence. Carol was thinking along these terms, and in fact, here was one of his uh, challenges, let gnat bite. So it goes gnat uh, to goat, boat, bolt, bull, bile, bite. Uh, now, after Carroll, in the 20th century, 21st century, uh, here is the first word ladder in the New York Times crossword puzzle by Greg Staples. And... Uh, Will Short sent this to me, and he said this is the very first time a word ladder appeared in, the, in any crossword. So it's doubles, it's, uh, it's double uh, word ladder. So cross, crops, coops, loops, hoops, hoods, woods, or words. And of course, we go from cross to words, which is kind of a nice tie-in. Uh, and so you still see them today uh, a couple of times a year in the New York Times crossword puzzle, because I, I, I do it all, every day pretty much, uh, you see a word ladder. So they're still very popular. But Will, Will told me recently that he had to stop giving doublets challenges because there are websites you can go on that will, that will give you the doublets if you give the first and last words. So it kind of takes all the fun out of it. So he doesn't do any competitions where people get prizes because you can cheat. Uh, he said it's a shame. He kind of regretted that, uh, that the game is, uh, this can't be done anymore. Modern authors, now, of all people, uh, Nabokov knew a lot of Carroll's pamphlets, his, his uh, word and game puzzles, and he knew Douglas. He, he had seen it. And so in his novel, Pale Fire, uh, here is a passage 
the main character says, some of my records are hate love in three, last male in four, and live or live dead in five, with lend in the middle. Uh, and he calls the game word golf, but it's clearly uh, a reference to Carroll's game. Also, James Joyce was absolutely fascinated by Carroll and by his game pamphlets, uh, oddly enough. And in Finnegan's Wake, you see references to Carroll all throughout. There are hundreds and hundreds of references in Finnegan's Wake to Humpty Dumpty, to Alice, to Carroll, uh, to the name Dodgson, to uh, you name it. They're buried in uh, Finnegan's Wake, for example. All old Dodgerson's dodges, one conning, one's copying, and that's what Wonderland's wanderladdle flaunt to the fair. Uh, very typical. There's a 14-word doublet in Finnegan's Wake, and, and I put them in boldface. They thank seeking as born forlorn in lore of love to live and wive by while, and rile by rule of ruse, wreathed rose and hose hold home, yet cometh elopier. Uh, so, not only did he know about the game uh, pamphlets, he knew about the architectural ones, and, and, ones, uh, and uh, Joyce was fascinated by the Egyptian Book of the Dead. Uh, so he, he took uh, a section from Carroll's pamphlet about the new belfry in Oxford that he didn't like the design of because it was too modern. And uh, so let's look at what Carroll did for fun. In that pamphlet, he said that uh, he gave a false etymology for belfry. He said, bell and free become meat safe. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and so in Finnegan's Wake, uh, Joyce reverses meat safe and changes it into Ephesteum. And he claims that this is a god in the Egyptian Book of the Dead. So there's all this bizarre, intricate wordplay that probably nobody would get. And I only found out about it by reading this wonderful book uh, by Mr. Atherton about, about these hidden references. So Carol's still having an effect in the 20th century. Now, by the way, you may not know that you could do doublets in Chinese, but indeed you can. And so, so here's another way to go from pig to sty. Uh, and so uh, jot that down if you. If you uh, so there's, there's a man in Hong Kong who uh, has figured out how to do it. It's really fascinating. Uh, Donald Knuth is a computer scientist, and he uh, is out in Stanford, the, one of the, the great living computer experts. He got fascinated by doublets, and he decided to look at all the five-letter words in the English language and find words that could not be changed into any other word by changing one letter. And he found about, uh, you see, he looked at 5,757 five-letter words, and he found that 671 of them could not be changed into any other word by changing just one letter. Now, interestingly, the word aloof is an aloof word. You cannot change aloof into any other word by changing one letter. So I thought that was interesting. Now, there are hidden images in Carroll's books, the Alice books, and also in The Hunting of the Snark. Uh, and by the way, if you've never read The Hunting of the Snark, it's one of the great 
masterpieces by Carol. It's, it's underappreciated. I highly recommend it. It's an easy read. You can read it in an hour. But it's, it's just great fun. And it's very quotable because, uh, among other things, there's a great quote in there that says, what I tell you three times is true. I always thought that was a great quote. Uh, so here's a hidden image at the end of the hunting of the snark. And I wonder if you can uh, see the snark hidden in that image. The, uh, there's the mouth there, nose, two eyes, and the ear over here. I can zoom in on it so you can see a little bit more closely. And uh, so he asked the illustrator to... Uh, to hide that image in there. It's kind of creepy. It's the very last part of the, the book. And in fact, Martin Gardner makes the case that this is a very, very serious book that could have been about illness. It could have been the loss of several friends that died around the time he was writing this. So it has a very dark streak to it. Uh, right around um, in the 18, late 1890s, Carroll decided he wanted to take a uh, all of his pamphlets about games and puzzles and, and create a book called Original Games and Puzzles. So he drew this diagram and sent it along to, uh, to an illustrator. And when he said, are you willing to undertake the job of drawing me a frontispiece for my book of Original Games and Puzzles? I want it to connect with Alice somehow. And my idea is to have Alice reading and in the background uh, the interval between them being the outline of some well-known figure from Wonderland. And, and, of course, if you look carefully, you'll see what's between the two trees there is the white rabbit. And uh, so he got this idea from, as I discovered, from doing some research, this postcard that was very popular in England at the time, and it's called Napoleon at his tomb. And here's Napoleon here. You see his outline. There's his face, and he's looking over at his tomb. There's his arms folded. And uh, so it's almost uh, undoubtedly the case that Carol looked at this and said, oh, maybe we can do the white rabbit. And uh, unfortunately, five months later, he died. And so this was never drawn, and the book was never published. So one of my, my goals in, um, in writing this book was to complete his project. He was uh, late 60s, late 60s, uh, in 1898. Uh, so I decided I would do this illustration. So I took 10 different tenniel drawings and I mashed them up to create this, uh, this version. And uh, if you know the illustrations, you'll see where I stole stuff. Uh, the uh, walrus and the carpenter, the oysters down there, that's from the Lois the Carpenter, and the other parts in the background are from other tenniel drawings that he did that weren't in the Alice books, and I stole those, and uh, just kind of reworked it a bit. And Alice is playing with her, her kitten in that illustration, so I took the kitten out and put in a, an art book where she's drawing the, the, uh, the rabbit. So, uh, so that's my tour of the Alice books and uh, of all the interesting, wild, crazy connections between them. And just in closing, uh, I'll tell you that last year I had the, the distinct pleasure of playing Alice's accordion in California because my friend Mark Burstein has Alice's accordion in his collection. And uh, 
since I played the accordion, it was really great fun. So, so I, I want to thank you all very much, and, uh, and I appreciate your attention.